let me make uh, a few announcements, and then uh, I'll explain where we left off and where we're picking up on page 42 in your notebooks. But we have a baptism two weeks from today, and baptism is something that Jesus has commanded for all of those who claim him as Savior, and therefore it is not optional. It is something that we are to do to show that we are identifying ourselves with the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. So if you have never been baptized, and that means identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which is why you're immersed in baptism, uh, to picture the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. If you've never been baptized that way, then you've not been baptized the way the Bible prescribes. And I'd be happy to sit down with you and explain that and explain why then it's important for you to be, to be baptized. But in two weeks is our next baptism. So any of you who have not been baptized, we should talk about that. And the best way to get that conversation started is to, for you to fill out an application, which you can get at the Information Center. It's just one page. It's very simple. And you turn that in to them, and they'll get it to me, and I'll contact you, and we'll go from there. But for the baptism in two weeks, uh, we always have a dinner associated with that. Uh, and it's a great time of celebration. Uh, uh, an encouragement for those who are baptized and then for our whole church family as well. But for the food, we ask you to participate. The church provides the main dish and several of the other items, but there are some items that we ask folks to, to help us with, and we have a sign-up for that. So that's Tracy over there in the corner, and uh, so see her if you uh, can uh, help us with the food on that. And also by way of announcement, some of the books that we've recommended related to some of the topics we're covering in our series, What's the Difference? A number of those have been ordered by our crack staff in the Resource Center, and those are available in the Resource Center, which is out this door and just across the hall. And on pages 34 through 36, we have those resources listed for you. If any of those are of interest to you, we may have them for you over in the Resource Center, so check that out. All right. We began last week on page 37. We ended on page 42, but we began on page 37 looking at the underlying issues that caused what is called the Protestant Reformation. And I explained last week that that movement that began in the year 1517, so we were only three years away from the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, uh, but that it was so-called the Protestant Reformation because it was a protest, protestant, and it was for, the protests were for the purpose of reforming abuses that had developed over centuries uh, within the church. That protest did not result in the reform that the reformers were looking for, and as a result, then there was a, a split off from the church, and a number of denominations then were created out of that, and we're going to see those denominations in, in a few weeks. But for now, we want you to know the root of that uh, schism, the root of that, that split. And we saw last week that it went, the roots of that went uh, for centuries before the 16th century and Martin Luther and the year 1517. Thanks, Gene. I think we're good. Thank you. Thank you. So it, uh, it went on uh, going back to uh, the 1400s with men like John Wycliffe we saw in your notes, John Huss, and again, all of that is in your notes if you were not able to be with us uh, last week. And I said and began to show, I trust, 
that the root issues that caused the rift that ultimately uh, became the Protestant uh, Reformation and the various denominations that came out of that had to do with authority. The root issue is the issue of authority. So if anyone were to ask you, what's the difference between what you believe, if you're a member of our church, what you believe, and then uh, if you have a Roman Catholic friend, for example, the, the root issue is not, you know, some of you don't eat meat on Fridays. It's not some of that kind of stuff. That's all kind of peripheral. The root issue is the issue of authority. From where does the authority come to determine truth? Who or what has the authority to be the source of truth? And we're going to see that the contest was between what the Reformers called sola scriptura, Latin for the Scriptures alone, versus the Roman Catholic view, which is, yes, the Scriptures, but the Scriptures plus, and we'll see what the plus is. So the root issue is the issue of authority. And if you have differing sources of authority, now out of those differing sources of authority can come differing definitions of how it is you have a relationship with God. And in fact, we're going to see that is precisely what happened. That you have different and radically different definitions of what needs to be done in order for someone to have a relationship with God. But it all goes back to this issue of authority. So is the church... And the Bible, are those equal authorities? Or is the Bible an authority over the church? If equal, then the church can require beliefs. Now hear this. Then the church can require beliefs that are not only extra-biblical, but in some cases we will see unbiblical. Extra-biblical means something is outside of the Bible. Unbiblical means it's contrary to the Bible. Now, something can be outside of the Bible, that is, it's not directly taught in the Bible, and not be contrary, it could be consistent with what the Bible teaches. But in some cases, we're going to see that some of the teachings that have come out of this equal authority, supposed equal authority with the Bible, that is, the church, some of those teachings are not only extra-biblical, they are unbiblical as well. We're going to see that in Roman Catholicism, The church and the Bible are equal authorities, and we're going to see what happens when that's the case, what kind of ill fruit is born from from that root. So page 42, Scripture and Tradition. I want to spend a, a little bit reminding you, reminding many of you, and perhaps informing some of you as to what the Scriptures say about themselves. So I say Scripture on the topic of Scripture. And here's what the Scripture says about its own authority. 2 Timothy 3 says, The Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, the key word in that is the third from the last word, the word every. Because from there, you get what we call the sufficiency of Scripture. The scriptures are sufficient for every good work to inform you regarding every good work that God requires of us. So the scripture makes a claim for its own sufficiency in 2 Timothy 3. And scripture has been provided for us by God 
in order to give us instruction in life and godliness and everything we need in, in both. Now, how has God provided Scripture for us? Well, in the Old Testament, uh, we don't have to spend much time on how the Old Testament came to us because by the time Jesus came to earth 2,000 years ago, the Old Testament had been completed for 400 years. So Jesus had a completed Old Testament, and when Jesus was on earth, he made st- statements about the veracity of the the. Uh, Old Testament and the completeness of the Old Testament. Those of you that are in our class called Master Plan for Life, we're actually going through that right now on Wednesday, Wednesday nights. But then you have the New Testament. Jesus is then central to the Bible. The fulfillment of what was promised and predicted in the Old Testament, but now flowing out of the person and work of Christ, we have the books that comprise the New Testament. And how do we know about the books of the, the New Testament? Well, God provided Scripture to us through special emissaries, special, uh, special uh, servants that the Bible calls the apostles. And Jesus spoke to this in John 14 and John 16, bottom of page 42. This is Jesus the night before he was crucified. And he says, The Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. Now, sometimes we read John 14 and 15 and 16 and 17 and actually 13, 13 through 17. Those five chapters uh, are all what Jesus did and said the night before he died, five chapters worth on one night. And you read those chapters and you look at statements like this and you think that Jesus is making this statement directly to you. So he's saying that the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. But in fact, Jesus is talking to his first followers. And he's telling them, the time has come for me to fulfill the mission for which I came, to die. And I am now, have prepared you, and the Holy Spirit is going to equip you now to carry out the work after I am gone. And here's how that's going to happen. You're going to receive the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is going to do a special work in you. He is going to guide you, teach you all things, and remind you of everything I've said to you. Now, why would those guys need to be reminded of everything? Because those guys are going to write it down. And it's going to become your New, te- it's going to become your new Testament. Later, Paul would be a part of that number as, as well. So this is a promise to Jesus' first followers, the apostles, for the production of the the New Testament. And then in John 16, Jesus says, When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet yet to come. So Jesus pre-authenticated, we say, the apostles to be the authorized writers of, of the New Testament. And the Holy Spirit equipped them to do that very thing. And then if you look at page 43... As they started writing then, their writings were recognized as Scripture uh, immediately. For example, 1 Timothy 5.18. The Scripture says, Do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Now, why does that matter? It's in 1 Timothy, a New Testament book, and it is quoting Deuteronomy, an Old Testament book, Deuteronomy 25, But it's also quoting Luke in the New Testament. And it's calling them both Scripture. So here's a statement that is part of your New Testament in which, in this case, Paul, who wrote 1 Timothy, 
is citing Luke's writings as on a par with the Old Testament writings. And notice, there was no council that met to do that. Luke's writings are our Scripture. And this shows that, I say, even though the canon of Scripture had not been codified when 1 Timothy 5 was written, the writings of the apostles and their associates, like Luke, were recognized as authoritative. And then, likewise, Peter writes, but Peter is writing about Paul. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort. Now notice this, as they do the other scriptures. So here is Peter, somebody who's writing scripture in Second Peter. And Peter is equating the writings of Paul with scripture. And again, this is in the first century. No council met to, to determine any of that. Now, our Roman Catholic friends will say that the church has authority to determine what is Scripture. And so the books that are contained in Scripture are only contained in Scripture, say they, because we, the church and church councils, determined it to be so. And passages like this refute, refute that notion. So Scripture is sufficient. Scripture has been completed through the authorized representatives that Jesus chose and, and, and empowered to be able to create Scripture. And then Scripture has full authority, middle of page 43. Acts chapter 17, the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. Here's why. They received the message with great eagerness, and they examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Now think about that. <laughs> Here's Paul preaching, and Paul is... In the book of Acts, King James says he was opening and alleging that Jesus was the Christ. And he's saying that the Messiah has come. And he's using the Old Testament scriptures to show that Jesus is the Messiah. And they are using the scriptures to judge what Paul says. Why? Because the scriptures are the authority. And then in Mark chapter 7, Jesus chides the religious leaders for failing to prioritize the authority of scripture. The Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He replied, Isaiah. So Jesus quotes scripture, not the tradition of the elders. <laughs> Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips. Their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Now, if someone says then that tradition is equal with scripture, they're going to have a tough road to hoe to prove that. And yet that is precisely uh, what Roman Catholicism teaches. That tradition and scripture are equal authorities. The tradition of the church and Scripture are equal sources of authority, says Roman Catholicism. Now, how do I know this? Bottom of page 43, Vatican II. Now, what is Vatican II? Vatican II was a, the title of an ecumenical council. Ecumenical council it means full council. So all of the, the cardinals of the church met in Rome for Vatican II. 
Now, if there's a Vatican II, then that implies there was a Vatican I. Well, Vatican I goes all the way back to 1870, 1870. And we're going to see in a few weeks some very important news that came out of Vatican I. But it's a, it's a calling together of all of the uh, leaders of the church by the Pope for the purpose of examining doctrine and then putting out a statement of that doctrine. So the documents of Vatican II is a, is a book. I have it on my shelf. It's called that, the Documents of Vatican II. You can Google that. And what I have quoted for you uh, here is, um, is, um, is from that. And you see what it says. There exists a close connection and communication between sacred tradition and sacred scripture. For sacred scripture is the word of God inasmuch as it is consigned to writing under the inspiration of the divine spirit. While sacred tradition takes the word of God entrusted by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit to the apostles and hands it on to their successors in its full purity, so that led by the light of the spirit of truth, they may, in proclaiming it, preserve this word of God faithfully, explain it, and make it more widely known. Consequently, it is not from sacred scripture alone that the church draws her certainty about everything which has been revealed. Therefore, both sacred tradition and sacred scripture are to be accepted and venerated with the same sense of loyalty and reverence. So I'm just letting you all know when I quote this stuff, I'm not making it up. That Roman Catholicism teaches that the tradition of the church, and then when that tradition is codified into dogma, into dogmatic teaching, from the Pope, from ecumenical councils like Vatican II, that that is equal authority and is to be treated with the same veneration and devotion as is sacred scripture. That's what the Roman Catholicism teaches. Now, let's look at the connection then between that belief and then some of the disparate doctrines that are taught within Roman Catholicism versus what we believe the the Bible teaches. Page 44, the connection between things like authority and indulgences and purgatory and so on. I'm making the case, we're going to read it here in a second, but I'm making the case that once you lose Scripture as the sole authority, now all bets are off. And now there's going to be all kinds of stuff that happens. And we're going to see some of the all kinds of stuff that happens. But we're referencing indulgences and purgatory here because if you were able to be with us last week, we talked about that beginning on page, page 37. If you weren't able to be here, all of these messages are, are recorded and are available at our website. So what is that connection? Page 44, Carl Keating is the president of Catholic Answers, a Catholic apologetics organization. And as far as I know, it is the largest Catholic uh, apologetics organization uh, in the world. And uh, Carl Keating is on, if you have cable and you've got a uh, channel called EWTN, the Eternal Word Television Network, that's a, that's a Roman Catholic network. Carl Keating and some of those who work at Catholic Answers are often on there. Uh, years ago, about uh, 15 years ago, I guess now, I had an ongoing phone debate with a gal who was a uh, Rosalind Moss, who was a staff apologist at Catholic Answers. 
And uh, I was asking her about the, uh, a claim that they make. That on, they make it constantly. They make this claim that Protestants are hope, hopelessly divided while Roman Catholicism is united. And so one of the proofs that they constantly appeal to that the Roman Catholic Church is the true church is that we are unified and you guys are not. So there's so many of you guys out there, you're all divided. But if you know your Roman Catholicism, you know that Roman Catholicism is not united. That Roman Catholics within the Roman Catholic Church believe different stuff about Roman Catholicism. So there, for example, are the Feniites who follow a man named Father Feeney, and they reject Vatican II as a legitimate council altogether. They don't like some of the liberalization that Vatican II did on the role of women in the church and stuff like that. So they reject it completely. But they're, they're, still, in the, they're still in the church. And so there's all kinds of these factions. So I'm talking to Rosalind Moss on the phone, and I say, you know, you make this claim. I heard you make it the other day on TV. And, uh, you know, you guys are divided, and I gave some of the divisions and all that. And she says, you know, Ken, uh, this is what she said. Uh, the fact that the church has survived all of these schisms for all of, that year, all of those years proves further that it's the true church. So I said, well, let me make sure I understand. <laughs> when you're unified, it proves you're the true church. And when you're divided, it pr- proves you're the true church. <laughs> so there's no possible way that anybody's going to be able to prove to you <laughs> that there's any other option, Right? So once somebody has determined their presuppositions, it's very hard to get them off of that. But that's what Catholic Answers is, and it's, it's extremely effective with the television shows they have and, and so on. <laughs> Carl Keating wrote a book called, mm-hmm. you see down at the bottom of page 44, I have it referenced, Catholicism and Fundamentalism. And in it, he tries to show how those who believe in the Bible alone, fundamentalists, have it wrong. And here's an extended quote from uh, a couple of quotes from that book. He says that the discussion about purgatory takes us, of course, to the rule of faith. Is it to be found in the Bible alone or in the Bible and tradition as handed down by the church? The reader needs to keep in mind that the controversy about purgatory is really a controversy about much more than purgatory. And he's absolutely right about that. Purgatory has just been a convenient warring ground. The ultimate disagreement concerns the doctrine of sola scriptura. If fundamentalists understood why that doctrine will not wash, why in fact it is contrary to scripture, they would have little difficulty in accepting purgatory and other Catholic beliefs such as the immaculate conception and the assumption which are not explicitly stated in the Bible. And we'll see immaculate conception assumption in a minute. Now, Keating has written, I say there, extensively in defense of Roman Catholicism, and yet concerning the assumption of Mary, the teaching that Mary's body has been taken directly to heaven, he does not even attempt to marshal a scriptural case. He says bluntly, no express scriptural proofs for this doctrine are available. After citing what he calls negative historical proof, (laughs) you know what that means? I have in parentheses for you there. Nobody's found Mary's bones. He calls it negative historical proof. So nobody found her bones, so you can't prove that she, you know, she did die like everybody else. But he can't marshal any scripture for it either, and this is what he says. Most arguments in favor of the assumption, as developed over centuries by the fathers and doctors of the church, concern not so much scriptural references. There are few that speak even indirectly to the matter. That, those are his words. 
but rather the fittingness of the privilege. The speculative grounds considered include Mary's freedom from sin, her motherhood of God, her perpetual virginity, and the key, her participation in the salvific work of Christ. It seems most fitting that she should attain the full fruit of the redemption, which is the glorification of the soul and body. But there is more than just fittingness. Pius XII said the assumption is really a consequence of the Immaculate Conception. Still, fundamentalists ask, where is the proof from Scripture? Yep, we do. And then he answers it, strictly, there is none. It was the Catholic Church that was commissioned by Christ to teach all nations and to teach them infallibly. The mere fact the church teaches the doctrine of the assumption as something definitely true is a guarantee that it is true. Now that's the best and biggest Catholic apologetics organization in the world, led by President Carl Keating. So uh, it it is serious, serious indeed. Once sola scriptura is rejected, as I say, all bets are off. And on page 45, let's look then at what happens. We've seen that the Protestant Reformation was the culmination of centuries of tension regarding issues of indulgences, purgatory, transubstantiation. We saw that last week. Again, listen online if you weren't here. We've also seen that each side appeals to different authorities to prove its case. While the Reformers declared the Scriptures alone to be the final authority in matters of faith and practice, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that its tradition is an equal authority to Scripture. This lesson will further examine the divergent views that Protestants and Catholics build on those respective foundations. And so let's look at what the Catholic Church teaches about Mary. And as we do, let me quickly tell you what the Bible says about Mary. The headline is, Not Much. If you've read your Bible, you've just done a cursory reading, you know, there's not a whole lot. Mary just shows up beginning of the New Testament, and you have an angel assuring her about, and and assuring her betrothed husband, Joseph, about this one uh, with whom she she is pregnant, and uh, how God is going to use her to deliver the, the Messiah. And we find just some very, very brief cameo appearances by, by Mary in the Gospels. And then you find her uh, with the 12, or excuse me, with 120 in the, in the upper room in Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 1, chapter 2. And after that, nothing. So we don't know anything about her early life. We don't know anything about her later life. And we just know some snippets of her life in the Gospels. That's what you have in Scripture. Now we'll still let, see later that in Roman Catholicism, there are seven additional books to the 66 that are in your Bible. And so some people think, well, maybe stuff about Mary's in those seven books. Those are seven Old Testament books. They're not New Testament books. There's nothing about Mary in any of those either. So the stuff in the Roman Catholic Bible about Mary is the same stuff you have in your Bible about Mary, which isn't much. So with that, what does the Roman Catholicism teach about Mary? Here are some of the dogmas regarding Mary. The first one is the Immaculate Conception. And when I talk to Roman Catholic friends, this is the question that I ask them. If they say, what's the difference between what you guys believe and what we believe? I say, 
let me, I can describe it to you by asking you a question. What is the Immaculate Conception? And I don't know how many people I've asked that question to over the years, but it's been at least 100, and I've only had one Roman Catholic friend answer it correctly, one. When I asked that question, pause for a second, I said, well, the Immaculate Conception, that's the miraculous, immaculate, miraculous conception of Jesus. And I say, Jesus was miraculously conceived. And the Bible teaches that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And we believe that, and the Bible teaches that, and you believe that. We agree on that, the conception of Jesus. But the Immaculate Conception is not the conception of Jesus. The Immaculate Conception dogma is the conception of Mary by her mother. Now, remember I said in the Bible, we don't know anything about Mary's early life from the Bible. We don't even know who Mary's mother was. Catholic tradition says it was Saint Anne. But the Bible says nothing about her mother. So the Immaculate Conception is the conception, miraculous conception, of Mary by her mother. Now, just so you know, I'm not making that up. There it is. The Declaration of Pope Pius IX, notice the year 1854. That doesn't mean 1854, which is fairly recent. That doesn't mean that was the first time people believed in the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Roman Catholics have been teaching this through their tradition for, for centuries. But it was codified in the year 1854. And Pius says this, Since we have never ceased in humility and fasting to offer up our prayers and those of the church to God the Father through His Son, that He might deign to direct and confirm our mind by the power of the Holy Ghost, after imploring the protection of the whole celestial court, and after invoking on our knees the Holy Ghost and Paraclete, under His inspiration, we pronounce, declare, and define. Now, the reason I have that in bold there is that's kind of a formula that's used. We pronounce, we declare, we define. This is authoritative dogma. And what is it we pronounce, declare, and define? Unto the glory of the holy and indivisible trinity, the honor and ornament of the Holy Virgin, the Mother of God, for the exaltation of the Catholic faith and increase of the Christian religion by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and the blessed apostles Peter and Paul and in our own authority. Here's what we pronounce, declare, and define. That the doctrine which holds that the Blessed Virgin Mary to have been from the first instant of her conception by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God in view of the merits of Christ Jesus, the Savior of mankind, preserved free from all stain of original sin was revealed by God and is therefore to be firmly and constantly believed by all the faithful. A Roman Catholic has to believe that as much as they believe in the deity of Jesus. In Roman Catholicism, they are both equally true. That Mary was conceived immaculately, which means without the stain of original sin. Now, that's what the Immaculate Conception is, and that's what the church teaches about it, and dogmatically teaches about it. So, on penalty of hell, you must believe that, even though it's not found in Scripture. Vatican II, you know, in case you think, well, maybe they thought better of it. 
No, Vatican II, which met in the 1960s. You see the years there, 1963, 1965. It is no wonder then that the usage prevailed among the Holy Fathers, whereby they called the Mother of God entirely holy and free from all stain of sin, fashioned by the Holy Spirit into a kind of new substance and new creature, adorned from the first instance of her conception with the splendors of an entirely unique holiness. The Virgin of Nazareth is, on God's command, greeted by an angel messenger as full of grace. Embracing God's saving will with a full heart and impeded by no sin, she devoted herself totally as a handmaid of the Lord to the person and work of her son, preserved free from all guilt of original sin. So that's the Immaculate uh, Conception. Now, if you remember when we had that, those two quotes from Carl Keating, Carl Keating said, you know, there's the fittingness of the privilege that Mary should be, uh, have been bodily assumed into heaven. Remember that? But he says there's not only the fittingness of the privilege, there's the statement of, and then he quoted another pope. And the pope was saying that this is really the assumption of Mary is based on the immaculate conception of Mary. So now, see, see how the, and I, and I don't mean to be flippant, but kind of how the house of cards goes now. Once the foundation of Sola Scriptura is removed, now, you, now you've got the immaculate conception, and now based on the immaculate conception, you've got a bunch of other stuff including what we have on page 46, the Assumption of Mary. And that whole page, uh, that whole page is this declaration about that. Now notice the year, 1950. Now again, it doesn't mean that nobody believed in the Assumption of Mary prior to that, but it was codified within the lifetimes of some, some here. Uh, so not, not that long ago. But look at the bold portion we pronounce, declare, and define it to be a divinely revealed dogma that the Immaculate Mother of God, the ever-Virgin Mary, having completed the course of her earthly life, was assumed body and soul into heavenly glory. This is a small item. It doesn't say that she, didn't, that she never died. Actually, there, the church has never said whether she died. So she may have died and then was... But, but, her, but her body did not see corruption, and she was immediately assumed to heaven, or she never died, they don't say. But she completed the course of her earthly life, and she was assumed body uh, and soul into, into heavenly glory. And again, Vatican II, page 47, uh, repeats the, the, same, the same dogma. Now, it flows out of the Immaculate Conception. The Immaculate Conception is not taught in Scripture. Her conception, her birth, none of that is hinted at in Scripture. But once you have the Immaculate Conception, from that comes the assumption, but not just the assumption, but a few other things. The perpetual virginity of Mary. That Jesus never had any brothers or sisters. And that's a teaching of Roman Catholicism, that, that Mary was a virgin her entire life. So that's why they refer to her. Did you see when I, here when I was reading the ever-virgin Mary? But you know, you've got passages that are just problematic on that. I mean, one, James is called in Scripture the Lord's brother. But uh, Mark chapter 6, Mark chapter 6, let me uh, read for you what Mark 6 says. Verse 1, Mark 6, 1. When Jesus left there, he went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? 
what's this wisdom that has been given to him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? So here he goes you know, to, uh, to, to his town, his hometown, and people are going, hey, this is one of our boys. How did he? Wow, you have really grown up doing miracles. And yet you're just a carpenter's son. And Joseph and Mary, and we knew your brothers and your sisters. That's the context of the thing, right? So, the perpetual virginity of Mary is not hinted at in Scripture, but it flows out of the Immaculate Conception. So remember how I said some things are extra-biblical, but then they become unbiblical? That's an unbiblical. That's contradictory to what the Scriptures say. And then there is the sinlessness of Mary. She was born without the stain of original sin, and Mary never then sinned. So all of Mary's uh, life, uh, she, never, she never committed a sin. And again, the Bible teaches no such thing. And Jesus Christ was not only our Savior, he was Mary's Savior as well. But, you know, it goes further. Uh, Pope John Paul II, who's now deceased, uh, but John Paul II was... Absolutely, uh, I mean, all faithful Roman Catholics are devoted to Mary. He was really devoted to Mary. Uh, he, had, he said a ton about Mary in his career as Pope. And one of the things that he almost did before he died was declare a new dogma about Mary. So, you know, you already got a bunch of these dogmas now. You know, you got the Immaculate Conception, you got the virginity, of perpetual virginity, you got the Assumption. He almost declared another one, that Mary is, and this is language that he used many times when he spoke of Mary, Mary is co-redemptrix with Christ. That is co-redeemer. Now, how do I, how do I know he almost did this? Uh, I've got an article, I'll pass it out to you guys next week, that I saved from Newsweek from 1997. Newsweek magazine. And it was the cover story of that particular week's issue in, in 97. And it was talking about a movement, worldwide movement of Roman Catholics urging Pope John Paul to declare this new Marian dogma of co-redeemer. And he was, he was considering it and many thought he was going to do it. He, he died before he did it, um, so it, it, he didn't. So it's not an official teaching of the church. But there were petitions from all over the world for him to do that. Now just think on that for a minute. This is truth that people are petitioning you to declare. So as I say, I'll give you the, the article, lest you think I make that up. So that's uh, Roman Catholic Marian dogmas, dogmas relating to Mary. And then middle of page 47, dogmas then relating to purgatory and indulgences. The Council of Florence said, If those truly penitent have departed in the love of God, before they have made satisfaction by worthy fruits of penance for sins of commission and omission, the souls of these are cleansed after death by purgatorial punishments. 
And so that they may be released from punishments of this kind, the suffrages of the living faithful are of advantage to them, namely, the sacrifices of masses, prayers, and almsgiving, and other works of piety, which are customarily performed by the faithful for other faithful according to the institutions of the church. So someone is in purgatory for an undefined period of time for satisfactions that have not been made for sins committed while on earth, and, and that satisfaction can be made by the good works of other people on earth. That's what that's saying. And then the Council of Trent teaches the same thing. And at the bottom of page 47, if anyone says that after the reception of the grace of justification, the guilt is so remitted and the debt of eternal punishment so blotted out to every repentant sinner that no debt of temporal punishment remains to be discharged either in this world or in purgatory before the gates of heaven can be opened, let him be damned. Let him be anathema. Now, the thing that's being damned there is what I believe and what I think many of you believe. That when somebody receives the grace of justification, when they are justified, then there is no further punishment uh, in, in hell uh, or danger of eternal punishment or, or any of that. And the Catechism of the Catholic Church, now notice the year, top of page 48, 1994. And I just want you to see those years because... Going back to 1439, the Council of Florence is teaching purgatory. In uh, the 1500s, the Council of Trent is teaching purgatory. And then up to the present day, just 20 years ago, 1994, the official catechism of the Catholic Church is, is teaching it as, as well. And then in the middle of page 48, you have the vehicle of being released from purgatory. That's indulgences, and that brings us full circle to what we started with last week. Remember, there was an indulgent salesman going through Germany, and that's what was the last straw for Martin Luther because he was selling these permits, these indulgences, so that people could buy either on their own behalf or they uh, could buy on behalf of others who have already departed. People could buy what was called a plenary indulgence. Plenary. Full indulgence. Which means now you're, you're like scot-free. Now one last historical footnote and we'll have to pick up there next week. You guys uh, see on TV when the Pope will do Mass from time to time in Rome. And he is at, what's it called, St. Peter's Basilica, Right? Uh, I've never had the privilege of being to Rome. I've never been, been to the Vatican. It's a fabulous, uh, fabulous place, I'm told. Uh, but do you know that that St. Peter's was built primarily from proceeds from the sale of indulgences? That's how much money came into the church from the sale of indulgences. Uh, so it was, it was an, a huge deal. Uh, but more important than the money piece of it, is the doctrinal piece of it. Is it true, and what does it mean about how someone has a relationship with God? And so that's what we're going to continue with next week, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day, the opportunity to be in your presence in a very special way with your people. We pray, Lord, that, and ask that you were pleased with our worship. And Lord, we thank you for this time, for us to be instructed about issues that are current in our day, about beliefs that are competing 
and contrary to what your word teaches. Lord, we need to be lights in darkness, and we need to be equipped and informed so that we can be effective lights. And so we thank you that we have this time to look at these matters, and we ask you to then use what we have learned so that you will open doors for us to speak to others uh, who don't know, who don't know that there is a different source of authority, who don't know that many of these teachings are not taught and not hinted at in your word. Help us then to be your evangelists, and through us, might you be pleased to see folks come to the Lord Jesus. Go with us this week, we ask you as we serve you, that we would do so in a way that is honoring and pleasing to you, and we ask you to bring us back together next Lord's Day, in Jesus' name, amen.